You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. All right, good morning, everybody. Hello. Good, there you go. (laughs) Today is part two in our VBS for Heretics series on the Gospels. And uh, the fact is the Gospels aren't just one thing as we spoke about last week, they are many things. Last week we talked about how they are history and biography, but not like the way perhaps that we define history and biography today. As students of the Gospels, as students of the Bible, we need to understand something called historiography, which is something we talked about last week. And I just want to recap briefly here to lay the foundation for today. That term is historiography. And historiography is not so much the study of history itself, but the study of how history is written and why, Um, how history is defined. And those definitions have not always been what they are now. We think of history, we moderns tend to think of history as an objective scientific endeavor to record the literal past in order to preserve it and to uh, notify posterity of it. We think of history as a retelling of past events as they actually occurred literally, physically, without any spin, without any bias. That tends to be how we think of it. Uh, Although if you watch the news, if you're privy to online or cable news, you know that there is no such thing as history retold without spin or bias. What is the news but history being told uh, moment to moment, right? And we all know that comes to us through the filters of people's biases, agendas spin, so to speak, right? Well, that's always been the case, yes? But anyway, we, as- we, we ascribe today, perhaps we should put it that way, we, we attempt, we, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, aspire to be scientific, to be literal about our history, right? I guess, guess that's true of us. Uh, but this, this aspiration, this scientific, literal aspiration, you know, approach towards history was not shared by our ancient ancestors as categories of literal and figurative arguably did not exist then as they do now. For them, history was arguably mixed with legend and myth because the purpose of recording and reciting history often took place in a religious context. But it wasn't, history wasn't recorded and recited in order to pass down factoids (laughs) about the past, but to define reality. That was, I mean, that's the purpose even now of history, right? To define reality. But the way they defined reality and the way we define reality are often two different things. Back then, though, history was told to define a people's worldview, to define their cultural identity, to define social and religious customs, to define the divine, as it were, to define the divine somewhat. Specifically with the Israelites, 
There's reason to believe that they saw the reciting of history as a way of productively shaping history, not merely documenting it. They recorded and recited history to productively shape reality, to productively shape history, what history is, what history was, not merely to document it. This act of recording and reciting history in the text was almost seen as, if I dare say, kind of magical. That they were productively shaping reality with these stories, they believed, arguably. I don't think there was any malicious intent in that. It wasn't a, an attempt to defraud anybody, this mixing together of history, myth, and legend. wasn't wasn't seen that way. Uh, I think that was just the way history was done back then. So yes, it's fair to say that the Gospels are history and biography, but maybe not in the way that we define or aspire to define history and biography. The Gospels are also a kind of prophetic literature, and I want to spend a few minutes this morning talking about what I mean by that. The Gospels should be read, I think, as a kind of prophetic literature, a Hebrew prophetic literature in the tradition of the prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, which, by the way, the Gospels often invoke, specifically the prophet of Isaiah often. The Gospels, too, like Hebrew prophetic literature out of the Old Testament or out of the Hebrew Bible, as Jews would call it, the Gospels, too, function as a critique of power. Hebrew prophetic literature is typified by this critique of power, critique of authority that often is corrupt and oppressing the poor, the stranger, the foreigner, Prophetic literature is always doing that, and the Gospels are no exception. It was always, prophetic literature was always a critique of power and a critique of the status quo. It was always a voice that stood in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed against unjust rulers and authorities. The Gospels are no exception to this, and for this reason, Jesus was seen by his contemporaries as perhaps the greatest Hebrew prophet of all time and a fulfillment of the prophetic writings, a fulfillment of the writings of the prophets. Jesus was seen as such. He came to fulfill the writings of the prophets, it was believed. But there are other reasons why the gospel should be read as Hebrew prophetic literature. I want to introduce to you this morning a term. It's called Vaticinium ex eventu. That's a mouthful. No, what other church are you going to hear a term like this? Here it is up on the screen. Vaticinium ex eventu. Does anybody know what that's Latin for? Just wondering. It's cool. I'm going to tell you anyway, but I'm just wondering. Uh, it means prophecy from the event or prophecy after the event. Leland's like, oh, yeah. Um, and it is a common literary device not just in the Old Testament or in the Gospels, I would, I'm going to get to that, but it's found in a host of ancient lit literature, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, perhaps Greek and Persian as well. Uh, but Vaticinium ex eventu is a way of writing about events as they occur or after they have occurred, but framing them as prophecy, framing them as predictions as events yet to happen. Another name for this is post-diction. 
which is going to be the word I'm, I'm going to use post-diction moving forward here this morning, because vaticinium ex eventu is a mouthful. <laughs> but post-diction was widely used in ancient literature, not just in, in scriptures, but in found in texts from Israel's neighbors, we would say. Uh, but anyway, it can also be found in the Bible, specifically in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. For example, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others used post-diction to predict the sacking of Jerusalem in the 6th century BCE by the Babylonians. Most scholars believe that these texts, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Ezra, etc., both the major and minor prophets, that most of these prophetic, te prophetic texts were written during the Babylonian exile or soon thereafter, after Israel's return uh, to home. These texts even predict with exact accuracy, exact precision, the number of years the Israelites would spend in captivity, which was 70 most scholars, again, most scholars understand this as a kind of post-diction. Conservative scholars, of course, reject that. But both conservative and liberal scholars would agree that these texts were meant to encourage the faithful and to explain cataclysmic events theologically, as if to say, this is all the work of God. We, Israel, have sinned. We have fallen away from the Lord. We have broken the covenant in some way. And God is using the Babylonians or the Assyrians or whoever to punish us. But to draw us back to him, draw us back to repentance. And when we do repent, Israel believed that the Lord shall restore us once again. That's how these texts functioned. And I think we find a similar thing going on in the Gospels with Jesus predicting the siege and the fall of Jerusalem numerous times in all four Gospels, I believe, if not at least three out of the four, but I think all four. Jesus talks about the fall of Jerusalem, which of course occurred in the year 70, supposedly 40 years after Jesus was gone, right? Right. Jerusalem fell to Titus, the Roman general, after a siege. It was a bloody affair, of course. And the temple itself was ransacked. Can you imagine, for a first century Jew, to see the city fall to these Gentiles and to see your holiest, you know, the most sacred object imaginable, you know, ransacked the temple? And this is, by the way, a major reason why most New Testament scholars date the Gospels to at or after the year 70, because they mention, more than just mention, but because they talk about the fall of Jerusalem, which we know happened in the year 70, again, to the Romans. This is seen as a kind of post-diction. Numerous places does Jesus make these predictions, and I'll give you one example. Out of Luke chapter 21, Jesus says this, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those in the city must leave it. And those out in the countryside must not enter the city, for these are the days of vengeance." as a fulfillment of all that is written, end quote. That's, that's pretty epic, right? 
We, we could go on and look at other texts where Jesus mentions or predicts the fall of Jerusalem, but I'll leave it there. I read these predictions as a kind of post-diction, as do most New Testament scholars. Post-diction in line with the rest of Hebrew prophetic literature, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. The point is to theologically explain cataclysmic events, like the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70, as God's punishment on Israel for their sins. In this case, in other words, in the case of the Gospels, the sin of rejecting the Messiah and his message. Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem as God's judgment against, specifically, I believe, the Jerusalem religious authorities for the rejection of Jesus and his testimony. To be clear, I am not saying that's literally true, that God literally sent Rome to sack Jerusalem and to slaughter countless innocent people because nobody liked Jesus. Or the lots of people did, but the religious authorities didn't, right? I'm not saying that's literally true. In fact, I don't believe that's literally true. I am saying simply that this is probably how these Gospels were meant to be read. Remember, these were Jews who wrote this stuff. It was a kind of Hebrew prophetic literature that included post-diction, and it was a way of theologically explaining cataclysmic events in the nation of Israel, and the most cataclysmic event you could possibly imagine, the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of the temple in the year 70, just as the prophets of old used post-diction to predict the fall of Jerusalem in the year 586. The correlations are astounding. I, I don't see a way of reading at least part of the Gospels, as, a, as Hebrew prophetic literature and as post-diction. So this adds another layer to how we should read the Gospels. Yes, they're biography and history, but they're also prophecy in that context of Hebrew prophetic literature. But they're also what's called, I think, a translation fable or an apotheosis tale. Apotheosis meaning God into man. Um, it's a deific they are a deification story, meaning the story of how a human, in this case, Jesus of Nazareth, is translated from human to divine status and eventually translated into the heavens themselves, deified next to his father God. There were many translation fables or deification stories, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Greco-Roman world at the time when the Gospels were written. In fact, that world was rife with such stories. These were the stories of demigods and heroes that we're all familiar with, Perseus, Achilles, Hercules, and quite literally dozens of other demigods. Demigod means half human, half God. Usually a, a father, you know, the father was a true deity, Zeus or Jupiter, and the mother was simply a human being, and the offspring was a demigod, half human, half God. Sound familiar? These stories usually followed the same patterns. Zeus or Jupiter, meaning the, the king god on high, the greatest god in the pantheon. Zeus was the Greek god. Jupiter was his exact counterpart in the Roman tradition. Zeus or Jupiter come down from heaven and impregnate a human woman. The son is given, a, given the title son of God, right? The son of God is, of course, a hero and a worker of great deeds and often has supernatural abilities because, of course, he's a son of God. 
However, this, this son of God dies in some heroic way. His body vanishes or is resurrected. He then ascends into the heavens, the trope often goes. He ascends on high, where he now resides with his father and sits on a throne next to him and is now fully deified himself. Sound familiar? Yes, I hope so. This deification trope, or it's also called apotheosis tale, is found throughout the Greco-Roman tradition. Countless, dozens of times, dozens of stories corresponding to the exact time the Gospels were written. Thus, it goes to say that the Gospels may, I think probably, were written in part to deify this peasant nobody from the backwaters of the Roman Empire, this radical rabbi who stood in solidarity with the poor and the powerless against the rulers and authorities, the corrupt rulers and authorities of his day, the Gospels are saying this guy is the true son of God, the true king of kings and lord of lords. Forget Perseus, forget Achilles, forget Caesar. Jesus of Nazareth is the true son of God, and he has been glorified and deified. This Jesus of Nazareth was the real son of God and king of kings, the Gospels are saying, through this trope, this demigod trope, this deification trope. And to be clear, this, this deification story of Jesus probably also should be read as a kind of political satire. This adds another layer to how I think the Gospels were written. They're not just biography, history, prophetic literature, or, or deification story. They are a kind of political satire. It was a way of mocking the political powers of the day, i.e. Rome. How do they do that, you might ask? Well, keep in mind that back then, people believed that all social and political power on earth had to be granted from on high. That if you were in a position of political or social power, if you had wealth, you were blessed of the gods or God. And, and if you didn't, if you were a slave, if you were among the underclass, if you were poor, you were seen as cursed by the gods or God. Now here comes the gospels flipping all that on its head saying, no, God is revealed in the oppressed one, Jesus of Nazareth, this, this peasant nobody from Nazareth. Nazareth. Nazareth was the sticks. It was also in Galilee, a place well known for being the haunt of misfits and outcasts and revolutionaries, troublemakers. And he comes from there as a peasant nobody, the son of a carpenter. He is glorified. He is deified. This peasant nobody who was crucified, no less, the ultimate denigration and humiliation. You're saying that he is, is God's son? It was a way of mocking the whole system. It was a way of mocking people's conceptions of power and authority. It was a way of mocking Rome itself. This peasant nobody of this oppressed people, he is God's son. God stands in solidarity, therefore, with the oppressed ones. God stands in solidarity, therefore, with the poor, with the so-called God-abandoned ones, the so-called godless ones, God is with them. The gospel should be read as such, I believe. They are a kind of political satire, the way of, their way of giving the finger to Rome and all those in cahoots with Rome, Herod and the chief priests and the religious authorities who also adopted that imperialistic mindset. It was a way of saying, no, you've got it all wrong. 
God's with us, not with you. That adds another layer to the way we should read the Gospels. And, and I think to read them as such is to read them kind of like a parable, not even kind of like a parable. I think the Gospels are really a kind of a, a parable. I love how Jack Caputo puts it. I love quoting Jack Caputo, especially this quote. Jesus didn't just tell parables. Jesus was a parable. I think understanding Jesus's prolific use of parables is key. It's like, it's like the, um, what's the word? The key to the crypt. I don't know. The decoding thing that you use to decrypt something. Parables are the way that the, the cipher. Thank you. Parables are the cipher to understanding the gospels, I believe. Parables are the code language in which, in which the gospel and good news of Jesus of Nazareth comes encrypted to us. And only those with eyes to see and ears to hear can understand what the Spirit is saying. Parables are not just a pedagogical tool, I think. They're not just a pedagogical tool, not just object lessons and analogies used for pragmatic purposes but rather parables are a way of reinforcing this idea that the symbolic, the, that story, symbol, and metaphor are always the language of the spirit. Symbol, story, and metaphor are always the way in which God and the deepest spiritual truths are revealed to us. That's why we do the Lord's Supper here every week. God has revealed the sacred, the divine is revealed in this. Somehow it's mystical. But we need these metaphors, these symbols, not just for pragmatic reasons, but because they, this is, in fact, the language of the Spirit, I think. The Gospels are playing on that. Symbol, story, and metaphor are always the way in which God and the deepest spiritual truths are revealed, which goes to say that if you don't like symbol, story, and metaphor, then the Bible isn't for you. <laughs> and the Gospels aren't for you. That's okay. But that's how they come to us. If you're lacking in poetic spirit, then maybe the Gospels aren't for you. Let those with eyes to see and ears to hear, hear and see the things of the Spirit. And I read the Gospels not just as a parable about the critique of power. It's not, they're not just a parable about the critique of power and God solidarity with the poor, but I think the Gospels are also about this idea that true righteousness and true godliness is not found in a rigid observance of religious law, but in the practice of love and justice itself. I think the Gospels function as a parable about that. Godliness and righteousness and true religion is not found in religious law, but found in the practice of love and compassion and justice and living as Christ in the world and laying our lives down just as he did. The Gospels seem to be a parable about the death of God, a parable about the death of the God of religious law, what was crucified. In a sense, that first century Jewish understanding of God was crucified, and this other understanding was resurrected, a God of love, pure love. Pure love. The God of religious law, in a sense, dies in the Gospels, and a God of love. Pure love is resurrected. 
And the early church embodied that. They let go of circumcision and keeping kosher and all, the, all these aspects of Hebrew law in order to embrace the cross, embrace this radical gospel of love and justice itself. I think the gospels function as a parable about the death of one understanding of God and the resurrection of another. And they are an invitation. The gospels are an invitation or a calling, a divine calling for us to participate in that new reality. So there you go. <laughs> That's how I look at the gospels in their many layers, biography, history, prophecy, parable, political satire. I, I think they're all that and probably more. They're really an astounding work of literature. I mean, if nothing else, they are, they are marvelous in their literary depth. I mean, we really uh, don't have much else to compare them to in the Western canon, I guess you could say. Uh, I think they're so marvelous, and I hope you agree. But that's that's how I see the Gospels, and uh, we've already done communion, so we're going to go right into any kind of uh, dialogue you want to have about this. Oh, Max, I forgot to grab the other mic. I've been, this one's been working good, though. It's, it works. That's cool. I'll switch, yeah. Um, but yeah, that ends today. It was a two-part series, so this kind of ends our series on the Gospels. And I hope I stimulated um, some thought, but does anybody have any questions or comments about anything regarding this series how do you see the Gospels? That sounds like a good question. <laughs> do you like the way that I look at them? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you want to add any caveats? Add your own view? Yeah, Randy. Oh. Um, quick question. Um, what if the Israelites weren't sinning and since they all the military around them was much bigger than there and you know doing what nations do just came in and attacked them and this is their way of dealing with hey we're doing everything right why is this happening does that make sense it, precisely yeah uh, i think that's exactly the case mm -hmm. yeah I, I think it was you know th these books were written in a sense during or after the fact as a way of again kind of theologically explaining um this profound suffering and this disaster they you know, like even we can completely relate to that. I mean, when something terrible happens in our lives, we often, especially if we are coming from a conservative place, we go looking for answers for why God would allow us to suffer like this. I mean, I was raised like that, you know, I must have sinned. I, there must be something in my life, some hidden sin in my heart mm -hmm. that has allowed God or made God take his hand of protection off of me and allow Satan to attack, mm -hmm. you know, allow me to get in this car accident or lose my job or, you know, I mean, that's the way I was raised. And it's, yeah. that's theodicy. It's, it's a technical term is a way of explaining how, you know, explaining the existence of suffering and evil in light of an all-powerful and loving God. How do we explain that? Yeah. I know it's in some of the places in the Gospels, um, it says this was done to fulfill this prophecy. Right. This was done to, so was it fulfilled or was it fulfilled? You know what I mean? I'm putting the scare quotes on it just yeah. like you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's okay. You know, I think it's okay. <laughs> you don't have to agree with me. Uh, but yeah, other thoughts? Uh, Steve, Randy, would you mind passing? Thank you. Yeah, I think just to say one of the things that I love about 
studying the Bible and learning more about it and this stuff is how much tension that things are being held. There is no binary of truth or untruth of history or myth, but it's in like almost every story when I start to look at it with some depth, I go, oh, it's holding all of these things in tension. It's not, it's not just history. It's not completely fake. It's not just a parable, but it's, it's politics, it's satire, it's uh, a, a historical movement of people while it's also talking about mystical elements. And that, I think for me, adds a beauty and a depth and a complexity to what's going on that makes it much more interesting and much more true than just, is this a true story or not, right? Because it's really easy to be like, oh, so you're talking about it's a parable, so none of it's true, so we should throw it out the window or whatever. But I think that makes it more ma more interesting. More, it gives it a different kind of magic than just being told from on high and being magical in in, in its you know religious aspect. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thanks. No, I mean, it's, but it took us a while to get there, right, Steve? Like the initial shock, you know, uh, the initial problems of deconstruction, you know, since felt like loss, it felt like we were losing that sense of God's presence in our life because we stop reading the Gospels, the quote, traditional way, yeah. And you have to be able to be willing to hold multiple things in tension at the yes. same time. Yes, and that, that's a picture of faith. Yep. I mean, that's what, it's, it's not certainty. It's, it's holding, you know, things in tension and being comfortable with uncertainty and mystery. Yeah. 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 Having the courage to face reality, that too is faith finding serenity in the aftermath of embracing difficult truths. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Uh, other thoughts? Yeah, Leanne, please. A uh, quick comment, then a question. So um, I had to take a pause because of current events, but I was reading War and Peace and the Tolstoy novel really wonderfully blends history and sort of fictionalized. So if anyone ever, maybe a different time, it's also a great example of literature taking like very specific historical events and then melding it with narrative fiction and myth and legend in like a really beautiful way. Um, but just a question, I guess, um, for you and for anyone else, I think something that's hard for me and I keep bumping up against is because the figure of Jesus seems so wedded to power now that it's hard for me to think of him in a way that is uncoupled from that. Um, it's hard for me to remember the story of like, he's from, he's a nobody from nowhere and was crucified. And like, I think like the, the shock of who he was as a person gets lost in the fact that, you know, Christianity is so wedded to, to power today and has been so appropriated for hundreds of years. So I guess like my question would be, how do we conceive of Jesus in a different way? How do we remember that he wasn't in his time he wasn't the symbol of power he was the opposite um how do we come back to that yeah uh jesse would you want to respond to that would you pass that back to thanks steve i think that's where queer theologians and non white male yes. theologians come into play yes people like althanum uh, Marcella Thanas Reed, who really introduce gospel and Christianity and concepts 
in the Bible in such an out of the box way that it completely reorients our understanding. Like I mentioned when you were talking about her a couple weeks ago, Aaron, or maybe it was when Ashley was talking, one of you had mentioned her. I mentioned her. You mentioned her. And she has, she has everything she's written is, it like fucks with your brain. So sorry. So it's okay. um, you can say fuck you. It's all right. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure I will next week, so it'll be fine. Um, it, it, it upends your brain because we are so conditioned to read the text in a certain way. And um, she has this one piece that's talking about sacrifice and care, but it's through a pamphlet by a Latin American foot fetishist. And she uses that to highlight Christ and Christ agency. And she does these really interesting things. And a lot of, even Christina Cleveland, who is the author of the book that we're reading next month, they, they're they entering in through their positionality and that reorients because we're engaging with the text through a different lens, reorients the way we see the text. Yeah, it's really good. Thank you for mentioning that. And that answers, I think, the question quite well, Leanne. Um, you know, it's really by hearing the gospel and, and, and understanding Christianity through the lens of communities that are oppressed that we really break that spell of white imperial Christianity. And that's, I mean, I'm trying to think about, you know, my journey into, into this, uh, this progressive uh, take on Christianity, which I think is actually grounded on the gospels. Um, but, it, but it absolutely was by paying attention and, and reading um, voices from marginalized communities, uh, which is exactly why uh, evangelicals, specifically white evangelicals, demonize all of this stuff as woke theology, right? Uh, any theology that comes from the margins is immediately labeled as, you know, woke theology and dangerous because it subverts the dominant power structure of patriarchy and whiteness, uh, and specifically Protestant European <laughs> Christianity, right? Which is, of course is the evangelical legacy. Uh, this is why they are so adamantly against, you know, uh, woke Christianity, which it's just, you know, crypto uh, for rejecting, frankly, the gospel, which came from the margins originally, you know, as you quite well pointed out, the, you know, this peasant nobody who was crucified, right, who stood in solidarity with the least of these and said, I was the hungry person you fed. I was the, I was the thirsty you gave water to. I, that was literally me. I am the, the oppressed one that, was, that you liberated. That was me. I mean, that's astonishing that they completely just, nope. Um, but yeah. Good stuff. Uh, somebody else want to comment or have a question about the Gospels, whether they've been appropriated by power? Yeah, Jesse, do you still have the mic? I'll leave when you do. I mean, not to hog the mic, but what's just, that? I'm sorry, say that again. I said not to hog the mic. No, but no, no. Just to even tag on to what you just said. Not only are they misappropriated now with. ALEC, I think the, that's the acronym for the big organization that is pushing, um, if anybody saw that insane prayer at Copeland's church that's been going around social media, that's a pledge for domination. Um, 
it's not only just misappropriating, but it's literally misreading text. They're at the point where they're looking at texts in the gospel that say, give to the poor, give to the hungry, and reading that as col um, consolidate wealth and hoard wealth and hold, hoard power and um, further marginalize the marginalized. And this is the gospel. That's what they're being told at this point. Yeah. You know, and what's interesting about it is even if they, even if, even if you don't want to interpret the gospel the way we do, look at how the first century church interpreted it. Look how Paul interpreted it. Look at how it was, it was good news for the slaves and the poor. And it was understood as completely subversive of that, of, of frankly, their religious structure. What could make a first century Jew, a Pharisee no less, give up circumcision? You know, give up keeping kosher. You know, what could make them do that? It was, you know, the cross and the gospel is seen as completely antithetical to the power structures and, and their rigid understandings of God and embrace of love and justice. And, you know, think about the church in Acts. I mean, conservatives will acknowledge, you know, the text literally says they share their possessions. They practice what we would call socialism or even communism didn't work out so well, it appears, but nevertheless, they saw that as a as the best embodiment at the time of the gospel. They, they were practically contemporaries with Jesus. You know, the, the amount of denial you have to live in to really buy into the bullshit, white evangelical, imperial Christianity, it's, it's astonishing. You know, but what's new? I mean, let's, it goes all the way back to Constantinianism, you know, this isn't, we, we think this is all new. It's not, but anyway. Um, Max, do you have something you want to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, I shared, I shared this on Facebook when I came across it this week. This reminds me too, since I'm the music guy. <laughs> yes, you are the uh, music guy. There is a, a result of like a study shown by Old Testament scholar Michael J. Rhodes and just did a snippet of his, he essentially researched the top 25 CCM songs based on lyrics and messages and stuff ccm means contemporary christian music yeah there you go thanks um and it says justice is mentioned only once in one uh in one top 25 song in contrast the hebrew word for justice mishpat alone can be found 65 times in 33 different psalms the poor are completely absent in the top 25 by contrast the psalter uses varied language to describe the poor on nearly every page Widow, refugee, and the oppressed are completely absent from the top 25. The orphan gets two mentions, one occurrence of which appears to refer to a spiritual orphan. For whereas enemies are the third most common character in the Psalms, they rarely show up in the top 25. When they do, they appear to be enemies only in a spiritual sense. Five, maybe most dev devastatingly in the top 25, not a single question is ever posed to God. The top 25 never ask God anything prick the psalter and it bleeds the cries of the oppressed pleading with god to act this is completely lacking in the top 25 and it goes on he says Rhodes goes on to say indeed there's very little evidence that the top 25 are even ever speaking clearly about situations of social or economic harm and and in many ways this is an obvious thing but like i think it's a really important part that gets lost in the conversation of how many decades right of the of the culture of evangelicalism and the most 
you know, popular songs, the ones that they sing in, in every Sunday and they're blasting in their car, right? Those of us who come from that world can probably imagine, right? All a bunch of friends blasting and singing these songs and doing them in youth group camp reinforce is both, I think, a reflection of, of the empire theology, right? And reinforces it, right? Because it's like, if you're never forced to embody, right, which is what music helps us do and art helps us do, if you're never actually forced um, or have the opportunity to embody the same themes that are talked about in the minor prophets and Psalms even, right? And you only fill it with this empire language that shapes who we are. Um, so it's, it's a massive world, uh, that's can't just be like pricked. Right. And it's like, no, this is the wholesale yeah, way of doing theology. Not really good. Thank you. And the pressure's on them. I mean, the pressure's on events and they're feeling it. This is why they're so outspoken, especially against, you know, the deconstruction movement and woke Christianity that they, they they're feeling this onslaught. A pressure coming from the Christian left. So we are gaining ground, but you know, anyway. Other thoughts, remarks, questions? Good stuff. Okay. Uh, Bob, can you put up the, uh, the benediction? I'd like to invite us to uh, say this together as a way of closing instead of just having me say, go in peace and you hear. Recording has stopped on the computer. Uh, I'd like us to say this together. It's cool. We can wait. There we go. So let's say this together now, please. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves as Christ did to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you for being here. Go in peace, my friends, and join us at the picnic in just a few minutes. I've got to stop by McDonald's, so I'll be a little late, but you know, I'll see you there.